0: Hello and welcome to the Mobile User Acquisition Show, a podcast to help you unlock tremendous growth for your app. My name is Shamanth Rao, I'm the CEO of the boutique growth marketing firm, Rocketship HQ, and host of the podcast, Mobile User Acquisition Show. In each episode, we feature experts in the field of mobile growth, and discuss strategies, tips, and pointers from the leading edge of mobile growth marketing. By the end of each episode, you will have gained actionable and tactical insights that will help you make more informed decisions in your own work around growth. The Mobile User Acquisition Show is produced by Meryl Vincent, Content Marketing Manager at Rocketship HQ. Our guest today is Matt Emery, Product Manager and Consultant at Turbine Games Consulting. Matt has extensive experience with games and he's run over 750 A-B tests across genres. These have been across retention, monetization, and game product. In today's episode, he dives into some of the key takeaways that he's had from all these tests, and he talks about how to audit and improve your games. For some low-hanging fruit and some advanced wins, definitely check this episode out. I'm excited to welcome Matt Emery to the Mobile UA Show. Matt, this episode's been a while in the making, and I'm thrilled to have you because you've seen literally hundreds, if not more, A-B tests, and I've always enjoyed and loved reading some of the stuff you talk about in terms of some of the tests you guys have run and all the insights around retention, monetization, and game development. So for a number of reasons, I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Today's episode, we're going to talk about some of the learnings that you had from the hundreds of tests that you guys have run and how you audit a game and review a game to identify opportunities for improvement. So what are some of the first things you look for when you're auditing a game? Where do you begin?
1: So our our general approach is to scan the entire product stack and marketing stack for low-hanging fruit, essentially. That said, like that approach is not always appropriate or what's best for the client or the game. It really depends on the phase of the product. And most in particular, whether a game is pre- or post-product market fit validation. We've worked with teams who behave as if they're post-product market fit growth mode, but for a variety of reasons, they never credibly demonstrated a product market fit. Using any objective measurable standard. And so, one of the learnings that we've had after running over 750 split tests and optimizing many, 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 many games is that if a game doesn't have product market fit, even doubling, tripling, or 9xing revenue is not likely to save them from a fundamental product market fit problem. Mm-hmm. To put it more bluntly, without PMF, it's unlikely that any level of optimization will be enough to overcome that structural disadvantage. But when we're looking at a game that does have product market fit or that is already in growth mode, the first thing we want to do is to look at the CPI versus LTV equation and really understand the shape of what we're working with. We wanna understand whether they're currently running profitable UA, whether they're close to getting over the hump, what scale they're currently operating at. And that helps us sort of prioritize where the lever to unlock growth really is for that product.
0: Yeah, what I found surprising in your answer was that games and apps could grow, even if they don't have product market fit, but that may not be sustainable. So if I might segue based on that, what are some of the objective measurable criteria based on which you would decide a game has product market fit? I also ask that because the notion of product market fit for a game, I would imagine is very different from what it would be for a consumer product which has some form of consumer utility, whereas for games, it would be different. So how would you define product market fit
1: for a game? Gotcha. This is something we're currently solving. I think part of the problem is that in the industry, especially among smaller publishers and developers, there's not really an objective standard for what product market fit (laughs) looks like. Our current approach is that in pre-release, before you have a build, the things you can look at are creative performance and survey results across certain thresholds. When you're in soft launch, that's when most teams converge around thinking about product market fit in the form of retention and CPI, and that's correct. I mean, I think in soft launch, getting mm. your CPI to whatever objective threshold you view as green light is uh, mm-hmm. half the equation and the other half is uh, getting retention past a benchmark threshold with your target audience. Sure. Hopefully you haven't entered worldwide and entered growth mode without first having confidence that your CPI and retention are competitive, although many sure. games obviously do end up in that place for one reason sure. or another.
0: Sure. And uh, I hear you and I understand that the retention and the monetization they are the building blocks of the LTV that eventually dictate how scalable and profitable the game itself eventually becomes. So to switch gears a bit, you talked about pre-product market fit. Are you running any tests at that point? And by extension, how does the stage at which the
1: product is impact the test that
0: you'd initially
1: run? The simple answer is that if we're not hitting our retention targets, that's where we focus. Yeah. Often there will be a mandate to focus on monetization, but we can pretty quickly just ascertain that the problem is a retention problem or a product market fit problem. And we may attack some low hanging fruit on the monetization front just to check the boxes, but really the problem is retention and that's where the focus needs to be. Retention is a lot more difficult to fix. A game that's built on a solid economy model. Improving monetization is actually quite straightforward. And those are the experiments that reproduce the most frequently. So we're much more confident in making that happen than we are in trying to improve retention for a product that is not really clicking. So that's the most important thing. We define product market fit as having competitive retention and CPI. If you haven't crossed that threshold, then we are really just laser focused on CPI and retention.
0: And if I might push back on some aspects of what you said and maybe I'm missing something very fundamental here, but would it not be possible to improve monetization to the point where your LTV to CAC just becomes sustainable to help with your retention? And I think the most obvious example I can think of is have super aggressive paywalls very early on in the user flow. Terrible user experience, terrible retention, but... You might just monetize to a point where your LTV to CAC is sustainable and profitable. So why not go
1: down that path, especially if monetization fixes are also easier? It it is possible. Anything's possible. I've never seen us monetize our way out of a retention problem. I've worked on over 100 games. I know that there are games that I don't have their data, but they certainly appear to be low retention experiences. They certainly look very punishing and they look like they're designed to (laughs) get you to watch 20 ads on day zero and then churn out. Yeah, But I think the key is really just what is your competitive set? The goal is to have competitive retention uh, relative to your peers. It's such a competitive market that if you try to go out of the gate with retention that is underperformant relative to your peer group or the group of products that are chasing your same target audience, then you're just walking out on a limp. You're going to a race with a, a V6 engine when you're Opponents have a V12 engine. You you can try to optimize your way out of that, but it's just, it's very unlikely to work. And I I would argue not, not the most efficient path. Certainly it's possible. I've just never seen it work.
0: And staying with monetization, you talked about product market fit. How do you differentiate the lack of product market fit versus a game just not being sufficiently monetized? I would imagine both these would manifest in product metrics like OpDAO or ltv to track And by extension, how do you differentiate not having product market fit from a retention problem where it's bad retention versus no product market fit?
1: It's a great question. You can go upstream. Many teams don't do this, but you can go upstream to non-retention signals of product market fit, like surveys. But usually when a team has retention that isn't where they want it to be they won't just give up they'll optimize for retention they'll play with different features they'll play with difficulty tuning they'll pull the obvious levers to try to improve early retention and make sure that it's not just some operational problem or some game specific problem that is causing their retention to be lower than it could be so generally they'll bang on that egg and see if they can crack it but if they can't i would argue that it's probably a product market fit problem you know it's probably that the users they are targeting with their experience are not particularly interested in in that experience.
0: You've obviously worked across multiple genres and done literally hundreds of tests. In your experience, what genres are easier to optimize or improve through testing
1: than others? Hyper-casual and casual are easiest to optimize if we're in a growth optimization mode. Those are the easiest for a variety of reasons. One of the most difficult and and sometimes annoying issues with mid-core and core titles is that the communities are extremely active. They're they're very good at detecting experiments, detecting differences mm-hmm. in experience and, and they can be conspiratorial at times. When we're in the casual and hyper casual space, we're we're usually less likely to encounter that. There are there are definitely casual games where people pay a lot of attention to, but In general, on average, uh, it's safer to do more invasive experimentation, I would say, on on hyper-casual and casual games. The scope of features in casual and hyper-casual tends to be lower than mid-core, so it's just kind of faster and easier to build and make client changes to test. The UA costs to power experiments are lower, and the TAMs are bigger, so you just have greater user flow coming into experiments. And then finally, at casual games, the mechanics and solutions are pretty portable across different genres within casual. I'm sure you've seen battle pass, daily rewards. These types of features tend to work equally well in a match three game or a merge game or what have you. It's very fun and easy to to play within the realm of casual because the learnings can be shared so readily and and you can acquire them pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, and I would imagine a lot of the formats, the features tend to be relatively standardized. So, I imagine a lot of the learnings from one kind of casual game can, with some modification, be ported over to different casual games and hyper casual games.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely.
0: With that said, what are some of these commonalities that you see that you feel could be ported over as learnings? What are some examples of commonalities that could be ported over as learnings from one genre to another, or what could be? patterns that you've seen across different genres.
1: One that immediately comes to mind, I think every game has this now, but there was a period of time where piggy banks were basically being moved into every casual and and casino title under the sun. And um, people were playing with tuning, playing with whether to treat them as events or permanent features. And I think gradually those have sort of spread out throughout the casual side of, of free to play. That's a pretty large feature. So it's on the large end of the types of initiatives that we run with clients, but some of the mm-hmm. low-hanging fruit that we very, very commonly lean on if we're chasing CPI, icon testing is pretty profound. You know, it's the simplest art asset that you can imagine that can produce double-digit lift for ROAS. It's generally yeah. lower cost and higher impact than screenshots or store videos. It's a really fun place to play to get quick wins. The other obvious pillar asset is ad creative. I'm sure, as, as you know better than anyone, ad creatives can have easily have double digit impact on ROAS. And in the grand scheme of things, they're easy to produce, don't require any client work. So that's an obvious place to play. On the retention front, as we mentioned briefly before, difficulty tuning or progression speed tuning are really good places to play. In many cases, just turning a a knob, just changing a value, a numerical value, the double digit impacts to LTV or retention, LTV via retention. And then on the monetization front, IAP and ad optimization is one of the places that we focus the most heavily and where we have many experiments.
0: Tom, these can be very quick wins. It's funny, since you mentioned the ad creative, somebody I was speaking to really thought that game was broken. They, They thought their retention was terrible. Monetization was terrible. It turned out they had one misleading fake creative that their ad person was running and they just hadn't questioned the ad person and that person hadn't questioned it. At the moment they took that creative out of running, their retention, monetization metrics all looked better. So suddenly, a good creative can move your numbers up, but also a bad one can make it look like your game's just not working. So definitely, I think that's one of the pitfalls to be very careful
1: about, I would imagine. Yeah. Oh, that's a fantastic point. I mean, that's part of what makes this so hard is you have to make sure all of your metrics need to be based on the right users. <laughs> yeah. Whatever your area is of your target audience, that's what you yeah. use for product market fit testing. That's what you use when you're optimizing. And if you're simultaneously kind of shifting the sands with the UA Creatives, then your, your target audience changes underneath you. It's hard to know that that's happening. And then when it happens, it can be obviously very disruptive. That's the strange nature of the business that we're in. I think
0: it becomes much harder when there are larger teams. And I was in a public company where this happened, where one team was running incentivized traffic to a certain country and uh, nobody else really knew about it. And everybody hit the panic button that the game is terrible in this particular country until we all found out it was just incentivized. So if you're right in that it's be it's very important to be careful about these interdependencies. But to switch gears a bit, with monetization tests, I would imagine it's very important to get the economy to be balanced, which is to say in-game currency and in-game goods need to be valued just right. You can't give too much away or you can't give too little away. If you give too little away, people churn. If you give too much away... You're destroying the economy. So my question for you is, how do you determine what's the right way to keep the economy balanced and the different in-game currencies be valued right? How do you think about that? How do you make sure these are valued right?
1: Gotcha. That's a good question. I have somewhat of a cop-out answer here, which is that if we're starting with a new economy and we don't have a perspective yet on tuning, I would generally recommend a pretty blunt 80-20 approach, which is to copy the tuning of your most popular competitor the games that okay. you know, your target audience is most used to. So just try to calibrate your game to what your audience is comfortable with and expects, and then using that as your baseline, experiment from there. Again, kind of a compound answer, but that, that is honestly the way we would approach it. We would approach it the same way when it comes to balancing free output from the economy and difficulty and then experiment from that baseline. It's very common to look at wallets to see if people are hoarding currency to see if people are not using the currency that you're giving them. And that can reveal a number of different problems with the economy. But in general, I would recommend not reinventing the wheel uh, on many fronts, including this one.
0: (laughs) And I think it ties into the fact that a lot of games have so many similarities in the mechanics. So if you're building on what's proven, You're getting 80% of the way there. You could certainly improve and optimize based on the uniqueness of your own game. But it sounds like what's established is always a good place to start. Having worked on 750 plus tests, what do you still find are some of the common mistakes that developers make when it comes to running tests, improving games, improving monetization, improving retention? and uh, the whole gamut of making a game better? It's a
1: big question. If I were to pick it apart a little bit, I think probably the number one problem we see is trying to continue to invest in a game without demonstrating product market fit or without really focusing on that as a gate, (laughs) focusing on growth mode. So not really understanding what phase you're in and prioritizing your activities accordingly. That's probably the number one mistake I see. When it comes to split testing specifically, You know, we we talk about split testing a fair amount. It is definitely not a silver bullet. It is one of many tools that we use uh, with clients. We don't by any means split test every initiative that we drive with clients. We split test when appropriate and when it's valuable to do so. One of the many of the mistakes we see clients making when they're first playing around with split testing is just testing initiatives that don't need testing at all, testing things that have no downside. Split testing is not free. It it incurs overhead costs, both to instrument it and analyze it and opportunity costs from other experiments you could be running. And so if you're making a quality of life change that's unlikely to hurt the experience, you don't need to split test that, you know, unless you're just absolutely determined to learn from the impact, I would recommend generally just do it. And split test something else that has more reason to do so. The second big mistake is split testing initiatives that aren't really designed to produce large lifts. If you're not setting out to move some measurable metric by 10% or more, just as a general rule, it obviously depends. I mean, if you have millions and millions of users coming in, you can detect much finer changes in metrics. but. Generally speaking, if you're trying to move a metric by 3%, it's very unlikely that a split test is going to be able to detect such a small change. We are generally split testing initiatives where we're trying to move some metric by a large amount. Otherwise, we would just do it
0: <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: or or not do it. But uh, depending on whether we think there's, there's sure. downside risk. Like canonical example of changing a button color and expecting sales yeah. to increase. That That's not a recommended experiment. It's not going to move anything 10% maybe yeah. it would move a number one or two percent, but you wouldn't know that from a split test unless you had millions of users powering sure. that experiment. What you said also
0: reminded me of some teams I have worked with where I think getting statistical significance and getting a clear measure of how much better A is better than B is very important to the team. And sometimes it strikes me that that isn't very critical because it comes at an opportunity cost. You have to wait you had to spend resources to make sure you're getting that level of statistical significance. Everything you said reminded me of this particular team as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you'll you'll never know for sure what the actual impact was. The best you can get is a probability distribution <laughs> where you're like, yeah, it, it yeah. improved by between one and 10%. We're very confident it was between one and 10%. And you know, the 8% chance it was between four and 6%, but we can't pin it down to a single number. You'll never yeah. know. As long as the number went up, you can just kind of celebrate and move on. hundred percent.
0: Matt, I think this has been incredibly insightful. And obviously, like we talked about, you've done 750 plus tests. so You clearly are able to pattern match to really understand what's really moving the needle. This is perhaps a good place for us to wrap up this interview. But before we do that, can you tell folks how they can find out more about you and everything you do? Just,
1: uh, you can come to our website at turbine.gains or Find me on LinkedIn. Um, pretty active there, Matthew Emery on LinkedIn.
0: Wonderful, uh, and certainly you have a lot of writings up on LinkedIn, which I would highly encourage folks to check out. And uh, we will link to your LinkedIn and your website as well. Uh, but for now, thank you for being a guest on the show.
1: Great, thanks for having me. Always happy to chat. Absolutely.
0: Thank you for listening to the Mobile User Acquisition Show. If any of this was helpful or instructive. I would love for you to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fits. This podcast takes a ton of time, effort, and love to produce, and I deeply value every review and every piece of feedback that you share.